and we're going to pray. Father, we just thank you for all the things that you've done and are doing here in our lives and in this body here. We are living in very perilous times that I believe may well be what the Apostle Paul wrote about through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we come today because you love us and you care about us more than we'll ever imagine. And you want to prepare us, Lord. And so we need to hear today what the Spirit is saying to the church here at Faith Christian Center. <clears throat> so we ask you, Lord, to help to open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the Word of God because your Word, it says, is alive, it's active, it's powerful, it's able to separate between the joint, like the joints and the marrow, the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is, comes to, to, to challenge us, to awaken us, to alert us, to strengthen us. Everything we need is in this Word. And you've given us your precious Spirit in us and here among us this morning. We ask Him to take this Word and quicken it to our hearts that may be alive. Satan, we bind you from this time together. We bind you from this place. You have no right in this place to steal the Word of God, to steal the seed of the Word of God from being planted in people's hearts. We bind you from trying to distract us so that the Word cannot get in us to the depth that God wants it to. And we thank you, Father, that you're faithful to do what we've asked you to do because we come to you in the precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Open your Bible with me to Matthew 24. And we're moving along in this series, Are You Ready? And our key scripture is right in here where Jesus is in a section of scripture <clears throat> talking to his disciples because they'd ask him, you're talking about things that are going to happen, how are we going to know all this? And, and that's a question people get caught up in today. Well, when's, when's it going to happen? When's he coming? When's he coming? When's he coming? And what we're going to see is Jesus doesn't answer that question, when. What he, the, that's not the right question. The, question. the question is not when he's coming. The question is, are you ready? for him to come. Because you can know when he's coming and not be ready and miss the whole thing. So that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to look in verse uh, 42 of Matthew 24. Watch therefore. That's the, after all these parables, he said, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. But know this. So we can't know the hour he's coming, but we can know this. We can know that the master of the house, that if he'd known the master of house had known when the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. In other words, a thief doesn't send you an email, and then when that doesn't work, a text, and then, you know, knock on your door and say, would you please unlock it at 11 o'clock, because I want to come and I want to take your computers, I want to take, I want to, I want to rob your house, and, and uh, so please make sure the doors are open, and, because if you knew he was coming, you'd be ready for him, right? And that's Jesus' point here. You don't know when he's coming, just like you don't know when the thief is coming. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you lock your doors, lock your windows at night? That's the last thing I do. I go around and make sure our doors are locked, our windows are locked. Why? Because I don't, why do I do that? Because somebody might try to break in. I'm not afraid of it, but it's wisdom to be prepared because I don't know who might try to break. A few weeks, a few years ago, my neighbor across the street came over to see me. Did you lose anything? I said, why? He said, I came out and there were no tires on my car. They were Joe's all stacking up on blocks. Somebody, and I live in a nice neighborhood. That they still, you know, because if he had known that, his car would have been in the garage. He'd have to move all his stuff out of the garage and put his car in there. But he didn't know it. So Jesus is saying, because you don't know, as you would with your house, be ready. Because this is far more important than the stuff that's in your house. It's far more important than the wheels on your car. It's far more important than, than, than all the goods that we love to keep and want to protect. We're talking about eternal destiny. We're talking about eternal rewards. We're talking about eternity here. And Jesus is saying the most important thing is to be ready. So how do you know you're ready? That's what we're looking at. So that's what he says here. Therefore be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And we've talked about the most important thing to be ready for is to make sure you're ready to know which way you're going. 
Because the Bible teaches that when this life is over, there's only two places to go after you live here. There's only two other destinations. There's heaven and there's hell. And they're both for eternity. We spend time talking about them. There is no such thing as purgatory. I know many of you were raised in a church that taught that, but you cannot find that in the Bible. It's not to be absent from the Lord if you're a Christian. It's to be present with the God, not through some holding tank where people can give or pray your way one way or the other. Whatever you've done before is what's going to determine what happens afterwards. And while we're still alive, we have the opportunity to change all of that. And we'll give you a chance to do that before the end of the service. Then we looked at eternity and what that means. We also looked at, at um, uh, we began to look at Matthew 25, we're not going to turn there, uh, the story that Jesus uses as a parable about being ready. And it's a story of a bride, a bridegroom, and the ten virgins that uses this as the ten ladies who were the ladies in waiting. And the, the tradition at those times, as I explained last week, was that the bride was being in her house getting ready, but the groom was also getting ready. And their weddings were not, you know, uh, uh, an hour and a half or afternoon procedure. It was several days. There were days of preparation. And there was a point when the, when the groom would come to go to the bride's house to get her and bring her back to his house and for the ceremony. And, and these attendants, who were really her attendants were to wait outside the groom's house for when he's ready. And if it was at night, they had lamps. And their lamps weren't flashlights with, you know, D batteries in them. They were lamps that had oil in them and wicks that would be lit. And the stories about these, these ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come to, to be escorted to the bride, and, and, and that because it took a while, it was longer than they expected because they didn't know when it was coming, they fell asleep. They got, they got tired and, and kind of drowsy and we talked about those two things last week. And then eventually they fell asleep. And drowsy is kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. Drowsy is when you kind of, you're, you're, you're half awake and half not. You're just kind of there, like some of you are right now. You're just, you know, I'm here. I'm in church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Margaret, wake up. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and then what happens eventually, and this happens to some of you, you just goes off. Now, when you're, when, you're just, when, you're just, when you're just sleepy, what happens is you're aware things are going on, but you're really not engaged in it. That's right. you're, you're not part of it. It's just, you know, you're aware it's going on, but it's almost like you have no power to do anything about it. When you're asleep, you have no idea what's going on. They could be taking everything out of your house if you, don't, if you sleep soundly. And it's just, you know, I've had times where I woke up in the morning and he's like, wow, what a thunderstorm we had last night. We did. I slept right through the thing. And you don't want to sleep through this time. You don't want to sleep through this time in which we are right now. And so we talked about that. And we talked about, okay, the parable was about being ready because they didn't know when he was going to come. And, and five of these virgins were ready. They were prepared and five weren't. They all, brought, they all brought their lamps. So it's talking about people that have the light. But when the time came because they were sleepy and it was, went longer than they expected, five of them weren't ready. And so they come, because what happens, they were out of oil to light their lamps. So they went to the, the five that brought extra oil and said, would you share some of that oil with us? And they said, no, because we may not have enough. See, understand, the kingdom of God is not always about what we would think it's about. You know, we talked last week about, you know, just because, you know, we're supposed to share everything with everybody. That's not always true. There's some, in many cases that's true. Some things are not. The Bible says to not cast your pearls before swine. There's some people, I've, I've known of people that God told, don't pray for that person. We just assume everybody should be prayed for. Not necessarily. You don't know what's going on. We need to learn to ask God, what am I supposed to do, instead of just automatically launching in there, throwing prayers all over the place. We'll probably talk about that a little bit on Wednesday night, not necessarily this one. Uh, so, so, uh, so what happens is, so we talked about, well, what happens is then the oil, they, the, the lamp, the light of five of these virgins went out because they didn't have enough oil. So clearly in this parable, what he's talking about is to be prepared is to make sure you have enough oil to the end. And so there are a lot of commentaries talking about what the oil means. And I believe most likely what it's referring to is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, because the, the oil typically represents the Spirit. 
And the lamp represents the light, the light that we have. The, the church is a light unto the world. And what this is about is being ready because the, bri- the groom, which is Christ, is coming back for his bride, which is the church. But I believe that the oil represents something more important than that, that, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit enables what the oil is about. And I'm not dogmatic about this, but this is going to work anyway because it's true. Okay, let's go to Matthew 22. We talked about this last time. And just quickly read, Jesus is talking here, the lawyer comes to him and says, you know, what do I have to do? Um, he comes to test him. Where am I here? Okay, Luke, Matthew 22, 34. 22, 34, John, not the wrong, works if you're right in the right chapter. Okay. No, 34. When the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him in question, testing him, saying, uh, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. The second, which is, is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang or our support, all the law and the prophets. So the whole New Testament and the whole Old Testament in terms of what we're to do with God is boiled down into two things. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and then love one another as ourselves. So I believe that the oil, that's in the, that the oil of, the, of the lamp is referring to our hearts and our passion and desire for the Lord. So they wanted to be awake. So this is what we've talked about. It's about the heart, which is why this, in the series, Are You Ready? We're talking about a mini-series, which is what, to be ready is all about the heart. You can have all your affairs in order, but if your heart's not in order, you're not in order. But you can have some of your affairs just kind of not quite where they are, but if your heart is in order, and we're going to talk about what that means, if your heart is in order, then the rest of the things will eventually get in order. And so, but sometimes, you know, we've got to be careful because when we're talking about the heart, because a lot of times Christians hear the word heart as their intentions. Well, the Lord knows my heart. He knows my heart. He knows that I, he knows I love him. He knows I mean well. But we're going to see some scriptures that talk about what you do, not what you intend. Because what you do shows where your heart is. If I told my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, every day for the f- almost 50 years now we've been married, but I didn't provide, provide for her, I never, I never held her, I never gave things to her, I never looked in her eyes, I never listened to her, those words don't mean anything. And they could be my sincere intentions. But the measure of what's really in my heart is what I do. That doesn't mean you're perfect at it. And so this is why the heart is so important. So we, went, we were last time when we ended, we we're in James chapter 4. And James chapter 4 is talking about the heart. James chapter 4. He's talking about why your prayers are sometimes not answered. And he says, because in verse 3, he says, you ask amiss with the wrong motives, and you ask to spend it on your pleasures. Then verse 4. This is where we were ending last time. This is, these, are, these are pretty hard words. Adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we left off talking about what does it mean to be a spiritual adulterer? We looked before last week in John chapter 15, 14, where, where Jesus said to his disciples, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Words, whatever you say, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And then in the next verse he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we talked last week about what Jesus is saying there. He's not saying if you have fond affection for me. And we used the example last time of a, of a, of a, of a couple that's, that's, that's um, engaged and they're sitting over this romantic table and he says to her, I love you, dear. I'll do anything for you. I'll give you the moon. I'll give you the stars. It's safer to say that because you can't, but that's, you know. 
to say, I'll give you my attention, you could do that. So if it's safer to say, I'll give you the stars or the moon, we won't go there, gentlemen. And he just holds, you know, what he, but what he means by that is, I want you. I feel good being around you. She looks back and says, oh, I love you, my dear. I want you. What she means is, I'm giving myself to you and to no one else. From this time on, when I marry you, I will look at no one else. I desire no one else. I'm giving myself. They're saying the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. And this is where we often are with the Lord because what He means by I love you is whatever you need, I have done for you. I've given literally my life for you. And when we say I love Him back, what we often mean is I felt good Sunday morning when they were reading praise and worship. I feel good when I read the Word. I feel good being around you. And that's great, but don't stop there because it requires a commitment on the other end back to Him. The more you put into this, the more you'll get out of this. And so, but now, this is kind of where I left you last week. So spiritual adultery, physical adultery, is if I, if I, if I decided that instead of getting my physical needs or my emotional needs met from my wife with whom I'm in covenant with. So in this covenant, when a line is drawn, so there are some things that I can only get from her, that I have committed to only give to her and only receive from her. So if I choose to get, to give or receive those things from anybody outside this covenant, that's adultery. That's a breaking of the covenant. Spiritual adultery is the same thing. Spiritual adultery, God has given himself to us to be everything we need, to be our source of life, our source of encouragement, our source of joy, our source of strength. And when we give our heart to something of this world, to receive from something of this world what God has ordained that we should get only from him, that's spiritual adultery. Getting quiet. And here's what he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's cheating on Him. That's what that's saying. If we're, if, if we're in love with the world or the things of the world, and we're going to see more what that means today, then we're at enmity against God because we're taking from Him what belongs to Him because of this, this covenant relationship and we're drawing it from what the world offers and we know who's behind the world. Okay, let's go on down. So let's find out what do you do about this. Verse 5. Or don't you think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in you, which is the marriage. The, the word, the, the Spirit of God, Paul says in several places, is a guarantee of our inheritance. It's a guarantee that God's given Himself to us. And the Greek word is arabon. And one of the meanings of arabon is engagement ring. So the Holy Spirit given to us is an engagement ring for the full marriage that's coming when Christ comes back for His church. It's a betrothal. And so the Spirit in us has been given to us to meet our needs. When we start seeking those needs, the, the, the meeting of those needs from something that the world offers us instead of God, what happens is we start giving our heart to the things of the world instead of giving our heart to God and the Spirit is jealous over that. So jealousy and adultery, those come together because they imply the breaking of a relationship, the harming of a relationship. Okay, what do we do, Pastor? Verse 8, 6. But He gives grace. Everybody say grace. Oh, say it louder than that. He gives grace. Amazing grace. But He gives more grace or greater grace. So if this is what we're doing, and most likely most of us are doing this to some degree or other, the good news is He gives grace. More grace that covers that. But here's the key. Therefore, it quotes the Psalms. He says, He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be proud in this case? Proud here does not mean, oh, am I something special? Proud is when I resist this and say, I'm not doing that. When I say, I'm not doing that, I refuse to look at that. I'm not doing that. That's hardening our heart. This is what this is all about. This is what Israel did. God called them stiff-necked. 
which means they wouldn't bow their neck to him. They wouldn't bow to him. They were stubborn and said, I was, and they resisted him. And when God was trying to help them and correct them and, 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 and redeem them and save them, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, what are we to do then? Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if, you're, if this is a situation in you, which it is to some degree in almost all of us, then don't argue against it. Ask God to show you. And then when it begins to show up, when the Spirit of God begins to shine His light on that, be honest with Him about it. He already knows. He already knows. Draw near to Him. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And stop doing what you're doing. Purify your hearts. Look at this, you double-minded. My mind is half of the time drawn into things of God and half of the time drawn into things of the world. Well, isn't that just normal? It is to somebody that hasn't really totally given themselves to God. But Paul says at the end of one of his letters, through the cross... I've been crucified to the world and the world's been crucified to me. In other words, the world doesn't affect me. The pleasures of the world don't affect me. Does that mean we can't enjoy things? No. It's what do they have of you? Do they have your heart? Are you using the pleasures of this world to satisfy some need that only God wants to satisfy? So this is what we're talking about. It doesn't mean we've got to go sit up on a mountain somewhere and wear a black robe and never, never interact with the world because then we can't bring his life, his life into this world. But the problem is when our hearts are, are, are engaged so much in the things of the world, our lamp goes out because nobody looking, people can't see the difference between the world and us. One of the concerns I have is one of the trends in the church today is, is in order to make the church more palatable, more acceptable to, 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 to people in the world, is we become, we've watered the standards down of righteousness and of holiness. Well, we don't want to offend anybody. Jesus offended people all over the place. And what we're going to see today, if you love people, you'll tell them the truth. You'll tell it in love, but you'll tell them the truth. Because we're talking about is there's come a day where we're going to stand in front of him and if I, if I don't tell the truth, if we don't tell the truth, somebody's going to stand in front of him and say, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't measure up. And you, you know, and you can say, look at me. Why didn't you tell me? It's in love. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Gets even better. Verse 9. Lament and mourn. Weep. I thought we were supposed to jump and run around the church. Yeah, but there's some things when we see in our own life, we need to be broken over them. We need to grieve over what was in what I, where I was. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy. Isn't this an exciting message? And your joy to gloom. Here's the key. Humble yourself in the sight of God and He will lift you up. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Now we're going to get into this a little more. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. I don't teach much on the book of Revelation because I'll be very frank with you. There's a lot of things in there I don't understand that I don't want to teach something I don't fully understand. And the second reason is sometimes this book scared me. Am I the only one? Okay. Yeah, wow. (laughs) I was thinking, Lord, thank you for putting the end of the book. (laughs) And yet in the beginning... It says to him in verse 5, first, we're not going to, don't put it up there, but chapter 1, verse 5, he said, who loves us? He's, he's telling this because he loves us. He's telling us because he loves us and wants to have us prepared and ready, not to scare us, but to love us. So the beginning of this book is, this book is, 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 a, is the revelation of John that Jesus brought to John on the Isle of Patmos. John is the last of the living apostles. He's probably well in his 80s. And all the other apostles have died. Most, they've all been martyred somehow. And, and most of the generation that had been around when Jesus walked on the earth are gone. And John, for his faith, has been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And he says in the beginning that he was in the Spirit. 
He was in the spirit. He was worshiping God. He was more conscious of the spirit world inside of him than he was the island that was around him. And on the Lord's day in a vision, he has a vision of Jesus. And we're not going to go through the first chapter, except we're going to come to the end of that chapter. And Jesus is here to tell them, him certain things to write to the church so that the church will be ready for some things that were going to happen in the near future and then for the ultimate future that we're looking at. And in chapter 2 and 3, he tells him to write a specific letter to seven specific churches. Each one of these letters is different because Jesus knows each church. And each church needed to hear something different. This is why I was talking earlier about it. It's important where you go to church because the Lord is speaking something in His churches. Now, there are some people that meet together calling a church that aren't His churches, and the Lord's not speaking to them because they don't want to hear. I won't go off on that. In verse 19, He says, Write these things which are about to come, which I'm going to show you. Verse 20. He's given him a vision, and in this vision, there is, there is a lampstand and there are stars in the hands of, the, of, the, of, of, of Christ. Verse 20, he gives an interpretation of it. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, that word means messengers, of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So he saw Christ in his, all his glory, and in his hands, in his right hand, were seven, were seven stars. And he says, this is symbolic. The stars represent the angels that are over these seven churches, and the lampstands represent the churches. Now, lampstands, of course, represent light shining out into the world. It also represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the light that shine out, because we are called the light of the world, the virgins were carrying lamps that had a light. And he says, the light of the world, the light that's going into this dark world are the, his churches. But each church has an angel over it. Some interpretations of this teach that that means there's literally a spiritual angel over the church. But the word angel in the New Testament is anglos, anglos which literally means a messenger. So the other major teaching on this is what I tend to lead, is that the angel of the church is referring to the spiritual leader of the church, the voice into the church from the Lord or the pastor. So with that background, we're going to look at two letters. We're talking about being ready. This is what Jesus is doing. He's shown John this vision. He said, write a letter to each of these seven major churches in Asia Minor because there's something I want to say to those churches so that they're ready. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He walks in his churches. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, I notice your good intentions. I notice you mean well. I notice your works. And notice Jesus is looking at our works. Now, we're living in an age and a time when grace is being elevated and emphasized, and there's a need for that because we've come through other times when the law legalism invaded the church. But, but in, in, the, in the history of the church, and certainly in the time that I've been alive and been in the church, there's like a pendulum that can go back and forth, where there are times when the church needs to hear one message and a time when the church needs to hear another message. And only the Spirit of God knows what that is, which means we have to be very discerning to follow what the Spirit, you'll see what the Spirit is saying. And we're in an age when grace has been emphasized because so many people are, don't, are having trouble relating to God and the love of God because they're so burdened down by the obligations of the law. And I'm measuring up. Have I done this enough? Have I given enough? Have I prayed enough? 
but we can go over to the side of grace so much that I can do whatever I want and everything's okay because God's grace. And there are people out there teaching that there really is no such thing of hell because if, God's really, if God is really a God of grace, he would never create a hell for people to go to. Well, God did not create a hell for people to go to. He created the hell for the fallen angels, but people go to there because they reject God and the things of God. That should have been a little stronger, amen. <laughs> All right, everybody say. Everybody say. <laughs> I love Jesus. Ah, I fooled you, see. All right. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you, you have tested those who say they are apostles and they are not. In other words... They've been able to discern right from wrong, and they've not listened or followed those people that are off. That's good. And you have persevered and have patience, and you've labored after my namesake, and you've not become weary. Notice he starts out by saying, you've done well. You've been faithful. You've been faithful to stick to the right teaching, the right doctrine. You've done well. Verse 4, but nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. In other words, you're doing right things, but you've forgotten what all this is about. It's to be done out of your love for me, not to be good doobies and be a nice church and a good church. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, or 13, talking about the gifts of the Spirit, Paul says, you know, you can have, you can have those gifts flowing to tremendous limits. Your, your, your music ministry can be like the voice of angels. You can have developed a faith that can literally move mountains. You can lay your life down and sacrifice everything. But if it's not done by, out of my love for people, my love, it counts as nothing. So this all comes back to a love relationship. And that's what he's saying to this church. Remember, therefore, here's the answer. By the way, this is a good answer for those of you that think you've fallen out of love with your spouse. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. Don't hear that much. And do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Let's go over to chapter 3, the last letter that he writes. To the church at Laodicea. This is not one of my least favorite in the Bible, but God's begun to minister to this to me in the last few days, and it's so powerful. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot, but I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, some, some translations say spit, but the word's what it says here. We don't like to say this in church. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I discovered in doing some study on this that one of the medical practices in those days, if you had an upset stomach, that they would have you drink lukewarm water because they found, and I don't know if it's true today, but lukewarm water would trigger you to vomit and get out of you whatever that poison was. They have other things that they can give you now to do that. And, and, and so Jesus says, because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm not going to go with what that means right now because that's not important for what we're studying here. The important thing is we don't want that whatever it is, right? We don't want it whatever it is. So because you're neither... In other words, he said, I'd rather have you cold than lukewarm. Lukewarm is when we sit in church in a slumber. When we go through a Christian walk in a slumber, going through the motions, the paces... Well, after all, I'm in, so I'm just going to go through the motions and the patience. That's like being married 50 years and I'm going through the motions and patience. I'm not, I hope. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's just, you know, you get up, you do the same thing, you go through the same routine, blah, 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 I love you. You love me, yes, I love you, I love you, yes, I love you, but there's no heart behind it. We're where we are today because we've worked at it. We're far from perfect, but we're still growing and learning in 50 years, but we've had to work at it because it doesn't come naturally. Everything in this world pulls against you. And there's a devil out there that's trying to do that. We've got to move along here. Okay. This is, this is why. This is important. This is how they got lukewarm. So we need to listen. 
because you say, this is what they said about themselves, I am rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing and I do not know and do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked? We've got to break that down for a minute. First of all, you understand, and I didn't know this until I'd done some study. Laodicea was a region and a city that was known, it was a very wealthy city. It was a banking center, kind of like Wall Street in New York. And, and it was also a, a city that, that manufactured or sold fine wool, especially a, a, a certain black wool that was shiny, that was, that was used for, for expensive garments. But notice what he says, because you say, this is how they saw themselves. We're talking about how do they get lukewarm? Because this is how they saw themselves, what they said about themselves. I'm rich, and I've become wealthy. So let's talk for a minute about what riches mean. Because it's not just money. It's not just money. I believe what, what the riches he's talking about are their accomplishments, what they've done, what they've built into their lives, that their identity comes from, that their trust is in. Because one of the dangers that the Bible talks about, about being rich, is you can put your trust in on certain riches. You can put your confidence in those things. But it's not just how much money you have in the bank or how much bling, is that what it's called, bling, that you wear. It's not about, you know, it's not about your fancy suits. It can be your accomplishments. It, begin, it can be anything that you build into your life, that you build into your life, that you build your identity on, your confidence in, because this is who they are. We're wealthy. We live in a better part of town. We'd never do those kinds of things. And you think you have need of nothing. You're content. You're well off, because I've got spirit. And this can be spiritually good gifts, whatever it is. But you don't know that you're wretched. This is how God, this is how, this is how I see you. David at one point says, Lord, search my heart. Try my heart and see if there's anything in my heart that doesn't please you. Anything in my life that doesn't please you. See, because the Lord looked at them and saw something different. Because just so we look at ourselves or look at this church and say, wow, we're doing well. We've got a new stage. We've got, we got new people, changes in things, you know. No things coming down the road. New, we'll talk about some of the physical changes we're going to make and things like that. Wow, isn't this great? Churches full on Sunday morning, great. Finances are great, great. But how does God see us? Lord, you're the head of the church. How do you see us? He saw them as wretched, miserable. They thought they were happy. Poor. They thought they were rich. This becomes important. Blind. They thought they saw well. And naked. They thought they were well-dressed. Let's go to verse 18. I counsel you. Aren't you glad he didn't just end there? He has something to say. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich. God wants us rich, but with His riches. White garments that you may be clothed nicely. Not with garments you provided, garments I provided. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And if you come and counsel with me, I will anoint your eyes with an eye salve that you might see. Also, I found out that in Laodicea, they, were, they had certain water or minerals that they, could, they had there that they developed in a very well-known eye salve to heal diseased eyes. So, he's saying, come to me. I'm counseling you to buy from me. Not Amazon.com. <laughs> Not where you'd go to. Come, come to me. You can't do this online. You can't do this you, mail order. You've got to come personally to him and buy from him gold refined by fire that you may be rich. Buy from me white garments that you may be clothed so that your shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. How do we buy this from him? First of all, it occurred to me to buy something cost me something. I knew that go over big. Let's go to Matthew chapter. I don't like it either. Matthew chapter 
Matthew chapter 6. So the question is, if they were drawn away to a lukewarm state, and the danger is you don't know you're lukewarm, especially if you're in a lukewarm church because we judge ourselves by those around us. Everybody else is doing it. So I must be okay judging my temperature by everybody else's temperature. That's why you can get annoyed if there's somebody around you that's so passionate for the Lord. They're sold out. Either they'll convict you or annoy you. They'll either convict you and draw you to be like them or they'll annoy you and you just want to get them away from you as fast as you can. And that tells you where your heart is. Tells you where your heart is. So we're, these are passages we went over last week. Oh boy, we're going to have to move quickly through here. We may not get through with this. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Go back again. Go back. 18. The verse before. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> you did it. Remember we just talked about the Laodiceans thought they were rich because of the gold they had. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You need to buy from me treasure that I have, value that I have, gold that I have. So he's saying the same thing here. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, verse 20. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're talking about the heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And what happened to the Laodiceans? Their treasure was in natural things. The things that they provided or other people gave to them. It was in the things of this world. Their value was based on the car they drove, the clothes they wore, the amount of money in their bank account, the bling that they wore, or it may be other things. It may be talent. It may be their job. It may be something else. But moth and rust destroy this. But he says, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Verse 22. That's the treasure. Now he's going to talk about the eye. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. We talked last time about what this really is talking about. This is using your physical eye as, a, as an example of a spiritual eye. Because we can understand the physical eye. The lamp of the body, what brings light into the body, what brings light into your physical body is your eye. If therefore your eye is good, that means healthy. Your whole body will be full of light. You'll be seeing clearly. Verse 23. But if your eye is bad, that word means diseased. Your whole body will be full of darkness. Therefore, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's saying just as your eye, if it's not healthy, if you have cataracts, if you have astigmatism, if you've got some other variation where, where there's something diseased about your eye, light may be getting in. You're not blind. If you were blind, you'd know you're blind. The danger is when you have these conditions, you may not know you, you're not seeing clearly. <laughs> Can I use this as an example? I was in Pastor Ray's office the other day. He got reading glasses. And he's looking at his computer. I said, oh, you got some glasses. He says, yeah, they're reading glasses. And he put them on and went, whoa, I can see it. You don't know what you can't see sometimes until you get clear vision. Often people that go through cataract surgery will begin to see, whoa, I thought I was seeing clearly. And now, because you're comparing what you've always known, and it's a gradual process by which those things develop. That's true of the heart. And if the light that's getting in you is coming through a diseased heart, 
a heart that's been given to other things, then the light, the truth that's getting in you is diseased, it's distorted, and how great is that darkness? And one of the greatest ones is pride. God uses me, I know exactly what I'm doing. This is that stiffness. I'm so certain, I know exactly what's... And I've had, like people come and say, you know, six months ago, Pastor, boy, you're preaching the Word. I really want to hear it. And then three months later says, boy, he's, he's lost it. <laughs> that can happen. But maybe the first place to check is my own heart. That was for somebody. Okay. So notice here, he's talking about three things that we just talked about the Laodiceans. He says, you've trusted in riches. We're talking about how do, what, how do I buy his riches, his gold. Therefore, if the light that... Okay, let's go into verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Notice he tries, he ties seeking with serving. You will serve someone. There's no such thing as an independent person. People that think they're independent are deceived because they're serving someone they don't realize they're serving. And that's the devil. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot. Either you will hate the one, notice the heart, hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We have to, we have to bring this to a close. He's going to go down in here, very familiar passages, and, and it seems to change subject. He says, therefore, why are you worrying about what you wear? Why are you worrying about what you eat? Why are you worrying about your natural thing? Why are you wor- doesn't say why do you, don't you take... He doesn't say, why do you take care of it? He doesn't say, why do you plan? He doesn't say, why do you budget? He says, why are you worrying about it? Don't you know your father, he clothes the lilies of the field. He clothes the lilies of the field. How will he not also greatly clothe you? So he'll give you clothing. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat? Look at the sparrows. You don't see them sticking around worrying. Harry, I think you're going to get in the eat. I don't know. I haven't put any bird seed out today. <laughs> if God feeds them, how much more will He feed His sons and daughters that He loves? Amen. And here's the key. So worry is giving your heart to the things of this world and putting those things a place in your heart that's above Him. Worry is taking into your own hands the responsibility for your provision and telling God, I don't have confidence you can do this. Very subtle. But the devil's after your heart. Verse 33. Verse 32. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Gentiles are people that have no covenant with God. Alan, are you here? Somebody let Alan out. We're not going to have communion this morning. I'm going to finish this message. This is too important. After all these things... These things the Gentiles seek. Gentiles means somebody that has no covenant relationship with God. They have to seek after these things because they don't have a covenant relationship with a God to provide for them. So their heart has to seek after these things. For your heavenly Father knows you need all of these things. So what are we to do? Verse 33. But seek first. Seek as with your heart. This whole thing in this section from verse 19 for verse 33 is all about what your heart is seeking after. 
Satan's weapon is to go after your heart. His goal is to go after your heart and to draw it away from God in church. To draw it away from God and, and not so that you walk away and get cold, so that you become lukewarm. Because when you're cold, you'll know you're cold when you get around someone that's hot. But when you're lukewarm, you think you're hot. So here's the key. If you're seeking with your heart first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all the things that you need will be added unto you. But don't, don't make the mistake of just thinking this is talking about bread and food and clothing and clothing. It's talking about anything that has a place in your heart where you're worried about it. Children. Ooh. Children can take a place in your heart that's above God. Your ministry. You don't have a ministry. I don't have one. It's His ministry through us. Can take a place in your heart that's above God. Where that becomes my identity. I'm a pastor. I'm a worship leader. I'm a children's minister. I'm an elder. Big deal. Just like the donkey Pastor Sam used to talk about that Jesus rode in on Jerusalem on that day, he never mistook that the accolades were for him. It's all about what has your heart. Because Satan wants to plant things into your heart, sow seeds into your heart, and they're very subtle at first. To, if, they don't, if you don't pull them out to draw you away. Proverbs 4. We'll close with this. Proverbs 4, not Matthew 4. <sighs> I can tell when I get excited I can't find anything. Proverbs 4.20, often used for healing scriptures. My son, give attention, that's what we're doing this morning, to my words. Incline your ear, open your ears, lean towards my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your what? Your heart. For their life to those who find you. What are you putting into your heart today? I mean, what are you during your life, during this last week? What were you sowing into your heart? CNN? MSNBC? Fox News? The stuff of this world? You've been sowing it? Because there's an enemy out there that's trying to sow it into your heart. Are you helping him? Keep them in the midst, keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Look at this, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence. We began by talking about a thief coming. If you knew the thief was coming and what the thief was after, they'd never be able to get into your house and steal it. If you knew the pickpocket was approaching you and you knew the pickpocket was after your wallet and they bumped into you, you wouldn't go blush like this. You'd go like this right away because you know what he's after and you know he's there. I'm letting you know there's a pickpocket. There's a thief out there who's trying to steal your heart away, trying to sow things into your heart that will draw your heart away using the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust for other things so that you don't put your love, your trust, and your hope in the Lord your God who saved you. 
God said to Egypt, said to Israel on the mount, the first thing He said to Moses is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of bondage. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you out of this world. I'm the one that brought you out of hell. I'm the one that brought you out of destruction. I'm the one that brought you out of your sin. I'm the one that did that. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because I've loved you. I've given everything for you. And all I ask back is that you love me back with all your heart. And I believe we're here because we want to do that. But these things come into our life. These pressures come into our life. Why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed, in some translations it says, it means to be pressured by a mold. There's pressure in this world. There's pressure in your life to pay your rent, to make your mortgage payment, to feed your family. There's pressure in this world to deal with the issues of life. That pressure in this world comes from the God of this world and what He's after is your heart so that you'll give your heart over to making sure what's going to happen if I don't do these things. If you'll learn to put put God first in your life, all these things will be added unto you. Guard your heart with all diligence with what you watch on TV is getting sown in your heart. Does that mean I can't watch TV? No, but you've got to be diligent. What spirits being sown into your heart? What, what, what are you watching? Well, they're, they're okay. But these, guys, these couples are sleeping together. I know they're not married, but I understand that. But that spirit's getting sown into your heart. The spirit of the world. There's so many popular shows out there with, with kids that talk back to their parents, and it's kind of funny. That's sowing a spirit into your heart. There's a spirit behind that. Keep your heart without a, with all... Look for this. Because out of it, out of your heart, spring all the issues of life. The life of God gets sown into your heart with the Word of God, swatted in your heart by the Spirit of God, because God wants to bring out of your heart the issues of life. This week, early one morning, my wife woke up and she said, I'm under attack. I'm just going through this terrible attack. I just, it's closing in on me. Pray for me. And what came to me is instead of praying for her, I held Gretchen over, grabbed her hands, and listen, I want to speak the word. And she just couldn't at that point. I mean, it's like fear supernaturally gripping her. And I said, say this with me. And I just started, scriptures just started pouring out of me, one after another after another. And when we finished, she was full of joy and peace. I rolled over and looked at the clock. It was an hour later. If I had just decided to sit there and think, what scriptures do I know? We wouldn't have gone very long. But I stirred it up. But why? For years I've been putting it in my heart. And in that crisis, in that moment, out of my heart came issues of life for her and life for me. It's all about the heart. I want everybody to close their eyes right now. Bow their heads. And we're going to take a moment or two. This is why we're just putting communion aside right now. And we're going to just meditate. Because when you go out those back doors, whatever you left is out there for you. And Satan will use whatever he can to distract you from remembering or, or, or going back to what you heard this morning. And we're going to take a moment to just be quiet and meditate on what's touched our heart this morning. Not condemnation. God's not angry at anybody. Because he loves us, he will correct us. And then I want to pray for you, and then we'll do one last thing before we dismiss. Father, as we take this moment, just to be quiet, we're asking your spirit to search our hearts, to help us to see where our heart is, not our spouse's heart, 
not our children's heart, not people we know could have used this message. It's our heart you're speaking to. We're here, Lord. We're humbling ourselves. We're drawing near to you. You promised you'd draw near to us. Your grace, your grace, oh God. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning and everyone in the sound of my voice. We're living in very serious times. The end, Jesus' return is very near, I believe. But what I do know is you've told us to be ready. Lord, I pray for everyone this morning that's seen something in their heart today. That as we prepare to go from this place, that you would that you would continue to bring this back to them. The Spirit of God has been put in us to bring back to our recollection the things that we've heard. We're now responsible for what we've heard, Father, but you're gracious enough to give us your Spirit to remind us and enable us to make the changes and direction that we need to make. Your Word says, Lord, the beginning of that is to repent and then to change our direction. Now, as an act of our will, we repent of where we've been and what we've done. We call on you to help us to change, to bring that change about in our heart and in our lives. For that, we thank you. In Jesus' name. Before we close.